Hello and welcome everyone to the LSE today. Um, this event forms part of a much larger conversation going on as part of the LSE festivals, I'm sure many of you are aware, um, organized around the theme Beverage 2.0. Now, this event has been underway since Monday and carries all the way through Saturday. So if today is your first day, feel free to, to come back for, for more events. Um, and it's all a part of a conversation committed to rethinking um, the, the welfare state in the 21st century and for a global context. My name is Megan Black, and I am an assistant professor in the International History Department. Mm -hmm. And I'm very pleased to welcome you here today. And I also um, am to say that if you are a Twitter user out there, the hashtag that you can use to follow our event is hashtag LSE Beverage and hashtag LSE Festival. Um, and I would ask you to please put your phones on silence as, as not to disrupt our event. It is hopefully going to be podcast, assuming we don't have technical difficulties. Um, so let me turn our attention to our speakers, my colleagues in the International History Department. Um, First, uh, Professor Matthew Jones, a scholar of British and American foreign relations history. David Modadel, a scholar of modern Europe and its relations with the wider world. And David Stevenson, a scholar of the, of the history of international relations in Europe in the 19th and 20th centuries. Now, collectively, their accomplishments, publications, and contributions to the field of international history are so encompassing uh, that it would actually take another panel to kind of get to the actual conversation. If I listed it, it would be like beverage in context 2.0, and I don't want to, to kind of put you through that. So we're just going to um, leave it at that for today um, so that we can open up a dialogue um, with the, the people gathered here. Um, so just as a small bit of framing for the conversation, the panel will be exploring some of the histories behind the social safety net or the set of mechanisms put in place to address um, the challenges of poverty, public health, employment, housing, and other issues. And our speakers will endeavor not only to provide historical context on the welfare state, but also to consider its um, the shape that it took across national borders. Um, so we'll, I know, have some conversation today about the US context, Germany, and Great Britain. And um, in that sense, we're hoping that it will spur a truly global and comparative discussion. And with that, I will turn it over to our first speaker, Matthew Jones. Thank you. Well, thank you all for, thank you all for coming. Uh, can, can everyone hear me? Yeah, good. I want to talk then about some of the international context to the Beverage Report, and particularly I want to talk about the United States and its experiences during the Second World War, and really the fate of New Deal liberalism in the context of some of the ideas that are being propagated across the Atlantic about social um, reform and uh, economic planning. So where I want to start is to look at the very famous address that's given by President Franklin D. Roosevelt on the 6th of January 1941, the State of the Union address he gives to Congress, where he um, elaborates on his idea of the four freedoms. And the third freedom that Roosevelt talked about in his um, address was freedom from want. And in this, Roosevelt explained in the immediate crisis that was being confronted um, by the world in early 1941, it was no time to stop thinking about 
quote, the social and economic problems which are the root cause of the social revolution, which is today a supreme factor in the world. The foundations of a healthy and strong democracy, in his estimation, included equality of opportunity for youth and others, jobs for those who can work, security for those who need it, the ending of special privileges for the few, and he recommended the coverage of social security should be extended and medical care provided for all. And he added, the inner and abiding strength of our economic and political systems is dependent upon the degree to which they fulfill these expectations. So this is the third freedom that Roosevelt was talking about, freedom from want. Now, of course, almost two years later, um, in December 1942, the Beveridge Report appears, arguing that a minimum level of living was needed to tackle the problem of want. And this phrase, freedom of want, appears in the Beveridge Report, mirroring in many respects the language that FDR had used in his State of the Union address. Want was one of the five giants needed to be tackled, as far as Beveridge was concerned, in the task of post-war reconstruction. After its production, the American press reports covering the Beveridge Report described it as the first attempt to translate the third of Roosevelt's four freedoms into practical action. And so, of course, it is possible to connect the language and the aspirations of these two episodes, the State of the Union in January 41, Beveridge Report in December 1942. Um, in the period before the Beveridge Report was issued, there is a kind of transatlantic echo chamber going on, where ideas about um, post-war planning, reconstruction after the war, are being exchanged by social commentators and thinkers on both sides of the Atlantic, this kind of transatlantic echo chamber um, operating. Now, of course, in Britain, for example, we can see how from 1940 onwards, there was a vigorous debate developing, spurred by a searching examination of pre-war failings and the requirement to harness a national war effort over the need to establish minimum standards of food, housing and health care to accompany any peace settlement. And if you want to get a sense of the public mood at this time, or the general mood at this time, there's no better place to start than to read George Orwell's essay, The Lion and the Unicorn, which appeared in print in January 1941, where Orwell there talks about the need for an English social, socialist revolution. It's a very, very evocative piece, full of the aspirations of the period and, and, and the mood of the time. At the first meeting of the War Cabinet's Committee on War Aims in October 1940, held five months after the formation of a coalition government in London, the Labour Party's Ernest Bevin, the new Minister of Labour, proposed that one of the principles which should inform the committee's work would be, quote, the direction of the economy to achieve social security and the provision of a reasonable standard of living and social welfare. And this was a sentiment that was actually shared on a cross-party basis by leading conservatives, just as much, of course, as by Labour ministers in the coalition government, leading conservatives like Anthony Eden, um, the heir apparent to the leadership of the Conservative Party, who was also animated by the need to um, rethink and revisit social reform after the war. Of course, not an aspiration held by Churchill himself. who was very much out of sync with the times when it came to his own vision of what post-war world um, would, would, would look like, post-war post war in Britain would look like. In September 1940, so some months before he gave his State of the Union address, Roosevelt's attention had been drawn to passages in a book by Samuel Grafton, the American journalist, which relayed British debates over the need for an economic bill of rights which combined the anti-Nazi struggle with establishing minimum standards of housing, food, education, and medical care, along with free speech, free press, and free worship. 
And Roosevelt was also made aware at this time of calls from both Protestant and Catholic church leaders in Britain for protection for the family, universal educational provision, and remove the removal of major inequalities of wealth. And so it's quite clear, I think, Roosevelt wove these ideas that he was reading about from Britain into the address which was to become the Four Freedoms speech in January 1941. You know, we have it from Roosevelt's own speech writer, that it was Roosevelt who injected these words and these ideas into the draft of the speech that was delivered in January 1941. Later on in that same year, when Roosevelt meets Churchill at uh, Placentia Bay in uh, Newfoundland for the meeting that produces the Atlantic Charter, their first meeting, actually, um, during the war years, on the suggestion of the British War Cabinet, there's a reference in the Atlantic Charter to, quote, the object of securing for all improved for all improved labor standards, economic advancement, and social security. So wo woven into Anglo-American post-war aims is, are these ideas of post-war reconstruction as well. The general idea of freedom from want was becoming elevated into a key feature of transatlantic discourse on aims for the post-war world. And by November 1941, just the month before Pearl Harbor, Roosevelt was attempting to, con attempting to contrast the progressive notion of freedom with the freedom to dominate others propagated by the German totalitarian regime. Quote, there can be no real freedom for the common man without enlightened social policies, he said. In the last analysis, they are the stakes for which the democracies are today fighting. Now, the domestic U.S. standard bearer for the idea of freedom from want was actually Roosevelt's vice president, Henry Wallace. Um, Wallace staked out his own vision of America's mission in his Century of the Common Man speech, which he delivered in May 1942. In this, Wallace proclaimed that, quote, men and women cannot really be free until they have plenty to eat and time and ability to read and think and talk things over. The march of freedom of the past 150 years has been a long drawn out people's revolution and this revolution cannot stop until freedom from, want has, uh, freedom from want has actually been attained. With peace, Wallace said, would have to come a better standard of living for the common man, not merely in the United States and England, but also in India, Russia, China and Latin America, not merely in the United Nations, but also in Germany and Italy and Japan. Now, Wallace's challenge to the old order found its musical echo in Aaron Copland's famous and stirring fanfare for the common man, um, music. If you ever heard that um, piece of music, you know what I mean. It has a, a tremendously resonant um, tone to it, Fanfare for the Common Man. It's a piece of music that was pre premiered in March 1943. And Copeland had been a pre-war radical. And Copeland's social democratic sensibilities had been alert to the potential for radical change brought by the war. And what is interesting, one of his early working titles for Fanfare for the Common Man was actually Fanfare for the Four Freedoms. So it's a piece of music written in the context of these calls for post-war change. And the, the composer really consciously figured this music as playing into this common man motif, which Wallace had begun to outline in his speech of May 1942. At the end of 1942, Wallace had given a radio address which looked forward to the peace that was to come after, quote, this worldwide people's war and the need for, quote, unity of purpose in promoting the general welfare of the world. Having read this speech beforehand, Roosevelt had stressed to Wallace that in the post-war world there would be, quote, the necessity of young people who come out of the army feeling they have won a war in which there is some more freedom from want and more freedom from fear. When he talked about freedom from want, he brought up, Roosevelt brought up, the question of the beverage report. 
So it's very much in Roosevelt's mind as well, these aspirations for post-war um, change. Now, spreading the message that the post-war era should herald radical social change from Washington was a body called the Office of War Information. If you like, it's the kind of Ministry of Information equivalent in the United States, the Office of War Information. And under the direction of, a, again, a, another a journalist, Elmer Davis, the OWI spreads the message of freedom from want, that after the war, the federal government should ensure employment at fair rates of pay and provide basic standards and levels of food, housing, and medical care. Now, I had some images um, of Norman Rockwell's... Um, we got those images that were up before. Were they? The bottom of the... There's a PowerPoint icon at the bottom of the screen. Oh, yeah. Where's that? It was the first image that was up. Which one's that? Uh, where's that PowerPoint one? There it is. If you go down to that. If you go up for that one of those ones. I've only got one image this talk. Now, this is... Uh, <laughs> now, um, here, of course, you see Norman Rockwell's um, famous um, paintings that he did... Um, in 1943. Now, Rockwell's images here were actually used by the OWI in its war bonds campaign to sell you know, war bonds to the American people. And these, this is Rockwell's images of the four freedoms, what he describes as the four freedoms. They were used for posters in many schools, government buildings throughout the United States. Um, now, this is freedom, from, uh, freedom of worship, freedom from fear. You know, you see here a family looking at their children in bed, and this newspaper here is talking about um, you know bombs raiding down in Europe. So there's a kind of um, you know there's a kind of reference to the war overseas here. Family trying to ensure security and freedom from fear of their children here. This is freedom of speech. Very famous image here, freedom of speech. Again, the kind of common man motif is very very apparent here when you look at the dress of the person who's standing up um, to actually voice. I mean, Rockwell talked about the fact that this came from an image uh, came from a scene he saw in his own kind of town hall. Um, where he saw um, a man rise up and actually um, give, um, give expression to an unpopular opinion within you know, a town hall context. So this is somebody kind of finding their voice, and you can see the contrast here to a more kind of conservatively dressed jacket and tie individual here and one here as well. Now this is the one, this is the one for freedom, of want, freedom from want. And you see what the picture that Rockwell uses to conjure up freedom from want is really the groaning table, groaning with food, and good, you know, bounty here. It's kind of Thanksgiving dinner with the turkey being served up, excited faces of the children around the, around the table. So it's a very kind of attractive um, image of the idea of, of, um, of, 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 um, of, of bounty and abundance being um, enjoyed by all. Holding a job, providing for one's family, aspiring to greater material well-being. These were all ideas for which Americans could unite and steel themselves for the challenge of global war, just as they resolved never again to experience the economic conditions of the 1930s. Now, when Beveridge toured the United States, which he did um, between March and May uh, 1943, he received a very positive reception. He spent an hour with the president. He met uh, Janet Beveridge, met um, Francis Perkins, the American Secretary of Labor, um, who was described as all for the Bre Beveridge plan in, uh, in Janet's memoir. And that Wallace, with whom Bever the Beveridge had, Beveridges had dinner, was, quote, a humanitarian who savoured the underlying philosophy of the Beveridge plan and liked it. In August 1943, marking the anniversary, the second anniversary of the Atlantic Charter, Roosevelt issued a statement which echoed exactly the <coughs> Charter's call for improved labour standards and social security for all, and connected this with a passage in 1935 
of one of the centrepieces of New Deal legislation, the Social, Social Security Act. Yet, and this is a big yet, despite all these signs, actually the prospects for wholesale reform in the United States as a result of the war experience were in fact very limited and very constrained. Limited and constrained by a number of different factors it's very important to recognize. By trends in congressional and party politics and by the growing power of conservative business interests and even more fundamentally by an American political culture which was singularly averse to radical social experimentation. For several years before the coming of the Second World War, it had been apparent to many observers that the political appeal of the New Deal was actually on the wane for many Americans. There were strong sources of opposition coming to it, um, which was always really present in the high tide of reform in the mid-1930s. Um, as New Deal measures were seen to lessen in effectiveness um, and the confidence of New Dealers um, also was eroded by the economic recession that hit in 1938. Roosevelt himself didn't help with his calamitous court packing plan in 1937-38 um, and his ill-judged efforts to intervene in selection of Democratic Party candidates for the midterm elections in 1938. And so by 1938 you can begin to see the beginnings of quite substantial opposition within the Democratic Party to the New Deal. To Conservatives, it was the federal government's expanding reach and any notion of economic planning that represented the true danger to freedom and that could stifle business activity and the creation of wealth. Ostensibly a means to bring Americans together, the idea of freedom from want became a battleground helping to shape one of the crucial debates in American politics concerning the proper role of the state and the fate of New Deal liberalism. Rejuvenated by their role in a national war effort, are no longer blasted as the economic royalists who have brought the country to the brink of collapse. Business leaders and corporate leaders in the war years began to argue for the importance of freedom from government regulation and control. During those war years, businessmen came to replace New Deal reformers in position of positions of power and influence in Washington, regaining the prestige they had lost in the 30s. While this conservative voting bloc in the Democratic Party not least led by southern politicians anxious about liberal interest in challenging the racial order in the south, the white-dominated racial order in the south, began, began to assemble in full force after 1942. For Democratic Party legislators in the south, above all, it was the potential for New Deal reform efforts in league with Labour to challenge the region's white-dominated racial order, an order that, that ensured its own grip on power that served as a powerful incentive for resistance. So what's happening here is that the efforts of the federal government to intervene in the economy and intervene in the lives of states are seen by white southern politicians as a direct challenge to their control of the state machineries in the South that impose, of course, Jim Crow and the system of segregation. And this really manifests itself particularly in a, in a struggle over um, the voting uh, procedure that's going to be followed by American soldiers overseas in 1944. Um, the electoral system in the United States is managed by the states themselves, not the federal government. It became very, it's a very, very complicated procedure that so soldiers overseas had to go through in order to actually register to vote because they had to write back to their home states in order to secure ballot papers from those home states to vote in the elections that are coming up in 1944. There's a little presidential election in 1944. So what the federal government is trying to do is make it simpler for soldiers to vote by introducing a federally run ballot system. And it was this that proved the battleground between southern politicians in Congress and 
officials in the Roosevelt administration who wanted to introduce this new measure. Um, because Southern politicians could see this as the thin end of the wedge. If the federal government is allowed to manage the electoral process in the states, it could mean they, un they undermine the whole, you know, the, whole, the whole practice of Jim Crow segregation and the exclusion of black, ba uh, black, black voters from the ballot in the South. So race comes into this picture very, very, in a very interesting fashion in the war years. In Washington, liberals were fighting a rearguard action by 1943 as New Deal agencies were wound up by Congress, and the OWI, for example, was dismembered. Antitrust actions were relaxed. Radical ideas were in retreat, symbolized above all by the fact that Wallace is dropped from the Democratic Party ticket for the 1944 election. Determined to make prosecution of the war his overriding priority, um, Roosevelt become really a... Um, Rose, many New Deal liberals becoming just very disillusioned by Roosevelt, the, with Roosevelt by 1944, um, as, as conservatives particularly were brought into government, and large corporations began to take over the war economy. FDR himself had raised liberal hopes in his apparent embrace of a second economic bill of rights in his State of the Union address in January 1944, when he talked about the need for a second economic bill, of course, an economic bill of rights after the war. But there was little follow-through to this State of the Union address in January 1944. The President, enmeshed in the diplomacy and strategy of the war and the Grand Alliance, was clear where his priorities lay. As he famously told reporters in December 1943, Dr. Win, uh, Dr. New Deal had become Dr. Win the War. So his priorities lay in the war effort, winning the war diplomacy, not so much on, domest on the domestic front. In truth, the President was increasingly tired, overstrained, and suffering from a multitude, a multitude of ailments, ultimately really the ailments that were going to kill him the following year in 1945. Many would soon come to doubt how much political capital Roosevelt was really prepared to expend in order to push reform into these new fields. His rhetorical flourish is seen as designed purely to keep the heterogeneous forces within the party together. The president certainly is a waterman, Wallace wrote in his diary in March 1944. He looks in one direction and rows in the other with the utmost skill. And that's really a lovely summation, really, of what Roosevelt was like, I think, as a political character. And it was for these party political purposes that Roosevelt dropped Wallace from the ticket in 1944, in July 1944, and replaced him with Harry S. Truman, a senator from a border state, Missouri, who was acceptable to both the Democratic political bosses from the big cities and the conservative South. Because, you know, Truman was considered, you know, quite un 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 wrongly in fact, I think, but Truman was considered kind of safe on questions, questions of race, when you consider his post-war record anyway. The publication in, in 1944 of Friedrich Hayek's The Road to Serfdom in the United States, a text which became a Book of the Month Club selection and sold a remarkable 300,000 copies in America, had meanwhile put respectable philosophical bones on conservative opposition to attempt to enlarge the regularity functions of the state. Hayek's portrayal of state planning of the economy as inevitably leading to the loss of individual freedom had a deep resonance for an audience awakened to the totalitarianism during the 1930s and the wartime years. The fact that so many political refugees had made their way to the United States to escape political oppression in Europe also contributed to an American self-image where their society was a repository of basic individual rights, with the absence of coercion lying at their centre, standing in opposition to a world steeped in the political excesses and human costs associated with grandiose state-making projects. By connecting so concretely the economic freedom of the market with the preservation of individual liberty, Hayek's insights endorsed the emerging rhetoric 
coming predominantly from the business community of the importance of upholding a fifth freedom, a fifth freedom of free enterprise in the post-war world. As peace approached, liberals could only ignore, could not ignore the significance for their own outlook of being engaged in a war fought for freedom against totalitarian regimes and in an ideology which lauded the supremacy of the state in all aspects of the life of the individual. The message of the 30s and 40s seemed clear to many American observers. Building state capacity when taken to extremes could represent a fundamental threat to human liberty and produce terror and violence on an almost unimaginable order. For many liberals, ambitious attempts to reform the fundamentals of American capitalism were superseded by a switch in their agenda to a stress on the importance of consumption and growth to alleviate social problems, with full employment by 1944 having emerged as the cardinal goal of economic management. It was almost inevitable that the liberals, who had never lost faith in Roosevelt, however, would see in Truman a poor and disappointing substitute after Roosevelt's death in April 1945. A small man of limited knowledge who wants to do the right thing, Wallace said of Truman very disparagingly in his diary. Although Truman's State of the Union address in January 1946 invoked the familiar liturgies of liberal reform, it was apparent the new president was not prepared to press forward with an ambitious program. In any case, Congress would have been, would have been very unlikely to have passed new measures. Nothing illustrated the political mood better than the fate of the full employment bill introduced with much fanfare in January 1945, which was intended to make it incumbent on the federal government to provide work opportunities for all those who were fit and able. In its final and much diluted form, the Employment Act, eventually passed in 1946, where the word full dropped from its title, allowed for higher levels of natural unemployment than its original authors had envisaged. The federal government was relieved from an automatic obligation to intervene when levels of joblessness rose, while the onus of responsibility for providing remedies to be, were, was to be shared more widely amongst industry, labour, state and local governments. Moreover, the promotion of free private enterprise was now stipulated as an essential part of federal economic policy. The congressional midterm elections of November 1946, which saw Republican majorities return in both the House and the Senate, represented the culmination of all these wartime political trends. The election result, in the opinion of a prominent State Department official, Adolf Burley, merely confirmed what anybody could see coming, Burley wrote in his diary. The New Deal dissolved with Roosevelt, and the country is voting for another shot at the laissez-faire economy. Post-war American exceptionalism then, in the minds of many Americans, was to become defined in terms of limited government and the economic freedom of the individual. In a war fought against totalitarian regimes, and where the main post-war enemy will be driven by a state-centered ideology, it will be this aspect of freedom rhetoric, that which focused on the pernicious role of government, which was to gain wider intellectual and political currency in the United States. With supreme irony, the eventual conservative heir to the common man populism of Henry Wallace would in fact be Ronald Reagan, a politician who had begun his political affiliation as a New Deal Democrat, and who had, but who had swung quite decisively against big government during the early post-war period. So in the US, to conclude, the war had served to polarise many views about the proper role of the state in the economy and how best to provide economic security for America's citizens. The ideas of the beverage plan, unlike in Western Europe and Scandinavia, would not find fertile soil on the other side of the Atlantic, where a very different political culture held sway. 
So in many respects, that transatlantic echo chamber I described in the early 1940s had fallen silent. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Well, thank you all for coming. Um, well, Beveridge was not alone. Um, and, well, the Second World War, in a way, was a watershed moment in the history of the welfare state uh, in many parts of the Western world and governments across Europe and, to some extent, even in America, although, you know, this is a slightly different story, as we just heard from Matthew, um, engaged in policies to combat um, social inequality um, and poverty. In a way, there was a beverage moment, or perhaps more precisely, beverage was part of this kind of welfare moment of the 1940s. And, uh, but focusing on beverage, uh, we sometimes um, forget that British history was not isolated on an island, um, but indeed part of a broader European, even global history. And I'm therefore very happy about this panel on the comparative history um, of the welfare state and post-war reconstruction. And my role on this panel is to talk on Germany, um, the German case. And, um, well, as Beveridge developed and um, implemented his ideas in Britain, um, the social market economy was implemented in post-war Germany. And yet, in contrast um, to um, Britain, in Germany, the establishment of the welfare state was not directly linked to post-war reconstruction. Um, there are actually two stories here. Um, and I would like to um, speak about both, discuss both um, briefly today. So first, there's a long history of the welfare state in Germany, right? And then second, um, there's the question of the establishment of the social market economy um, in 1948 um, and post-war reconstruction. Um, so in the following, I will argue that um, the German welfare state, to start with the German welfare state, um, slightly different from the British or even the American example, developed in three waves. Um, each wave was in a way um, connected to the to, to major social economic crisis. Um, so the first stage was the crisis really of the 8080s, um, which led to Bismarck's um, social legislation. And the second stage was um, the crisis following the First World War and, um, more importantly, the Great Depression, um, which led to uh, Nazi social policies. Um, and the third stage, the beverage stage, um, if you like, um, was the Second World War, which led to the establishment of Germany's modern um, social market economy and post-war reconstruction. So um, let me start um, with the first wave very, very briefly. Um, in Germany, the history of the modern welfare state is longer than in most other um, countries. Um, here in the 1880s, um, Bismarck established actually the world's first um, welfare state, introducing major social um, legislation, um, social security, um, including universal health care, um, retirement pension, um, social insurances, like, such as um, sickness, accident, and disability insurances. Um, but to be sure, um, this policy was not the result of moral or ethical um, considerations or of genuine concern for the workers or the poor. Um, rather, it was Bismarck's realpolitik response um, to the rising influence of the socialists and the social democrats. And 
um, you see here the social question, right? This is the famous painting, the strike, der Streik. Um, in short, he knew that he had to address the social question in order to uh, maintain social peace and to keep the support of the German workers for the imperial state, right? And yet, the modern welfare state, um, the Sozialstaat, um, as we call it in German, um, was not only shaped by Bismarck, but also, and perhaps more importantly, by Hitler. Many parts of the German social system of today, including our um, the, the four-stage tax band, uh, which is then placed today, were created in the 1930s, right? The welfare state of the Federal Republic is deeply, deeply rooted in the Nazi state. And as in the case of um, Bismarck's welfare legislation, the Nazi welfare state was um, the result of a crisis. Um, the, the, the crisis of the Weimar years, right, um, which led to major social and economic upheavals in the interwar years, uh, the hyperinflation of 1923, um, the Great Depression of 29, um, and um, so social welfare policies were from the very beginning a pillar of, not, of the Nazi program. Um, so the NSDAP's famous 25-point program of 1920, um, for example, was dominated by economic and social policy plans. So the, the Nazis promised a kind of like classless, organic, racial and social community, right, which they called Volksgemeinschaft. Um, and when the Nazis came to power, they launched an unprecedented welfare program. They, I mean, Hitler showered the Germans um, his subjects with social benefits, as long as they were not Jewish, um, considered otherwise racially inferior, um, disabled, uh, or considered an enemy of the state, right? So this is a sinister story, um, but the Nazis passed hundreds of welfare laws and regulations. The tax reform of 1934 introduced the modern tax system. A new income tax um, shifted great, the greater tax burden from big companies and wealthy Germans to the poor. Um, the working and middle classes benefited from tax cuts. Um, the work accident insurance was increased. Um, the regime offered generous uh, child benefits, um, pension rises. Um, farmers enjoyed um, huge subsidies. Um, the holiday entitlement of German workers was doubled in the 1930s. Landlords had their rights restricted, um, making it far more difficult to raise rents or reject tenants. Um, so how did the Nazis finance this? Well. Um, through a number of measures. Um, first, robbery, right? So non-Jewish Germans um, benefited basically from the expropriation of, 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 of Jewish property, of Aryanization, right? Second, the regime borrowed money, uh, both from the Germans and also from foreign sources. Um, third, the Nazis financed the welfare state through transfers from the rich to the poor. Um, for example, through the uh, increased property tax. Um, fourth, through deficit spending, right? I mean, Keynes' dream. Hitler's New Deal, basically, um, which was, um, of course, not an invention by Hitler, but had already been introduced by Heinrich Brüning, uh, Chancellor in the uh, late, 1920s, early, uh, late 1920s, early 1930s, and Hitler expanded it, basically, um, and particularly also through the armament industry. Um, but this story is, is getting even more, more sinister. Um, during the war, the Nazi welfare policy escalated. So from autumn 1940, over time, pay was... Um, was not taxed anymore. In 1941, all retirees, um, all pensioners were given uh, national health insurance. Uh, the SD, the SS um, uh, Security Service, observed, I quote, visible satisfaction and great happiness, sichtbare Befriedigung 
und große Freude among pensioners. And on top of all this, they received a 50% pension rise in 1941. Um, so social transfer, transfer benefits um, for families doubled during the war. Um, the provisions, Versorgungssätze of wives of soldiers were twice as high as those of American or British um, soldiers. Um, Four-fifths of the Germans um, paid no direct war taxes. Um, until the end of the war. And the reason for this expansion of the welfare state during the 40s um, was basically the war, the occupation, and the Holocaust. Um, the Holocaust, the robbery of Jewish property from across Europe, massively increased the state budget. Uh, moreover, the Nazis robbed um, from the countries they occupied, um, from across Europe, raw materials, goods, foods, so from you know, weed, um, seeds, eggs, um, and so on, were brought to Germany um, hold on. Um, and finally, the Germans brought millions of slave workers to the Reich. In 1945, um, they comprised a third of the German workforce. Um, and this history has, of course, been researched in depth by my former teacher, Ulrich Herbert, at the University of Freiburg. Um, so as the German expanded territorially, uh, the German welfare state expanded, right? So this was, in a way, welfare by warfare. Um, by shifting the burdens of war from the Germans to the populations of the occupied territories, the war helped to elevate the German standard of living and to finance this welfare state, um, conquest, robbery, mass murder were essential. Um, and this was um, vital for the regime, right? Because the welfare state was, was basically to provide social peace um, and to keep the home front quiet in a way. And this was one of the many reasons why Hitler did not stop. Um, peace would have meant bankruptcy. And the German historian um, Götz Ali, in his famous book, Hitler's Beneficiaries, um, has even argued um, that the economic benefits were one of the major reasons why, reason why so many Germans supported the Nazi state up to the end of the war, basically because they had a good time, right? I mean, this is a very, very controversial argument. I'm happy to talk about this with you in the discussion. Um, but uh, this was, of course, very different in, in Britain, for example, where Churchill um, um, uh, really uh, appealed to, 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 to the British people to, to tighten their belts and to make compromise. So now the question arises whether there was, in fact, a German beverage moment, um, given that by 1942, Germany had already been a well-organized, comprehensive, overblown welfare state. Um, and I would say... Yes, um, there was. Um, there was a German version of beverage, um, and that's the social market economy, or soziale Marktwirtschaft, uh, which was established after 1945. And as in the case of beverage, it had roots in the Second World War. Um, towards the end of the Second World War, scholars at the University of Freiburg in southern Germany um, developed plans for a new post-war liberal social welfare state. And you can see one of them. Um, this group is, is um, 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 to some extent um, linked to the so-called Freiburg School, a group of order liberal economic, uh, e economists, among them, yeah, this person here, Walter Eucken, um, but also others like Konstantin von Dietze, Adolf Lampe, and so on. And this um, order liberal school advocated a market economy with some state intervention, right? So conceptually, they emphasized the importance of the legal framework of an economy. Um, so in terms of approach, they can be really seen as, as forerunners of James Buchanan's um, uh, constitutional and economics or, um, well, institutional economics, right, as put forward by Douglas North and others. Um, and I should mention, actually, that I have also a personal connection um, to the Freiburg School because my first 
ever academic job uh, was actually as a student assistant at the Walter Eucken Institute, which is in Walter Eucken's home in Freiburg. Um, and the Walter Eucken Institute today is still considered itself kind of like bastion of social liberal, of social liberal market economy in Germany. Um, although it became more neoliberal uh, in the 60s when um, Hayek became its director. And say a bit more about that in the discussion too. So members of the Freiburg School and other scholars of the universities, including lawyers, um, theologians, um, historians, and so on, formed the so-called Freiburg Circles, um, which were both discussion groups and increasingly also anti-Nazi resistance movements. And core members were not only Walter Eucken, who you've just seen, um, and Konstantin von Dietze, but also the economist Adolf Lampe and non-Freiburg scholars, such as the law professor Franz Böhm um, from the University of Jena. And uh, what's often forgotten, uh, also their wives, right? Because in these circles, um, their wives were very much part of it, of, 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 of this group. And Eucken, um, had been, had been, um, who had been a professor at Freiburg basically since 1927, um, had early on clashed with the pro-Nazi leadership of the university, right? I mean, the director, uh, 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 Martin uh, Heidegger, right? So, who was, became a director of, the, of Freiburg University in 1933. Um, so and during the the war, after 1943, these scholars began to think more systematically about the future. And they developed blueprints for liberal social economic post-war order, um, which they wanted to propose to the Allies. And this plan was to reintroduce a liberal market economy, to replace the Nazis' command economy and welfare state, um, and also, on the other side, to keep some elements of the welfare state, right? And in January 1943, this group completed a major memorandum, the Freiburger Denkschrift, um, a, month, a month before Beveridge, basically, offered his report. Um, and anxious to be un, un, uncovered, they produced only three copies of the text, right? This was still the Nazi, Nazi era. Um, and uh, the one that was the basis, basically, for the post-45 copies uh, were hit at a farm in Zeik, um, which is a small village close to the Lake Titisee, right, which you can see here. It's a nice um, location actually to visit, right? If you're in the Black Forest, um, go to the Titisee because, um, yeah, you can um, rent a boat and, um, and discover the lake. Um, anyway, so they, 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 discover, they, they hit the, the memorandum in a small farm next to Titisee, um, but then after the failed assassination attempt on Hitler on 20th July 44, um, the Gestapo uncovered the group because some of them had links to the plotters and discovered the memorandum on the farm. And some of the authors were arrested, among them Dietze, Böhm and Lampe. Uh, Lampe actually died as a consequence of the arrest um, just after the war. Um, and obviously in Freiburg today, when I was at the Eucken Institute, this group is, is, is celebrated as a major anti-Nazi resistance movement, and they were to some extent. But the, obviously the story is much more complicated, um, as it always is. Um, so it's not a black and white story. Um, clearly the group opposed Nazism, but the memorandum also included an appendix um, so it was not just on the social economic post-war order, but it also included an appendix on the solution of the Jewish question in Germany, right? An Anhang, Vorschläge zur Lösung der Judenfrage in Deutschland, which did not mean meant genocide for them, but still it shows you that they were children of their time and of German society, right? Um, 
I'm going to talk about this later. So um, let me um, uh, come to, to the end of my talk, or to the, to the last like, quarter. Um, after 1945, uh, the Freiburg Circles, this Freiburg group, especially Waldtauiken, had significant influence on the establishment of the new economic order, the social market economy, soziale Marktwirtschaft in the Federal Republic. Um, it is important to note here that the concept of the social market economy was not completely congruent with the models of the Freiburg School. Um, Eucken and his order liberal colleagues really believed in the market and wanted only limited state intervention. Uh, but this person here, um, a major, another major arch architect of the post-war economic order, Alfred Müller-Armack, um, um, who was an um, economist at the University of Cologne, um, and later German finance minister, um, and who actually coined the term soziale Marktwirtschaft, social market economy, um, emphasized both economic freedom and social policies. Uh, and both Eucken and Müller-Armack had significant influence on Ludwig Erhard, who, who um, emerged as the most important economic politician after the war, right? First as the first minister for economic affairs um, of the Federal Republic, and then later following Adenauer as its second chancellor. Uh, and on April, uh, 21st April 1948, um, Erhard proposed the social market economy to the CDU, um, which uh, meant basically for him a synthesis of free market capitalism, so you know, private property, uh, free trade, free exchange of goods, and social policies, so pensions, healthcare, unemployment, insurances, and so on, um, to provide social security. And during the first parliamentary elections in the summer of 1949, um, the CDU-CSU campaigned with the Sozialmarktwirtschaft program, and they won the elections, and so Germany's new economic order became a liberal welfare state. Um, so was this new um, order important for post-war reconstruction? Um, well, uh, many um, historians would argue that it was. Um, the welfare state and the social um, peace it, it brought, uh, or bought, <laughs> um, uh, led to Germany's post-war economic miracle. Um, but um, sorry, this miracle. But but there were of course other factors which made German post-war reconstruction possible. First, of course, the aid programs of the of the Allies, most notably the the Marshall Plan of um, 48-52. Um, so, emerging wealthier and more powerful than than any other country, the U.S. launched this major so-called European Recovery Program for 16 European countries, worth three uh, 13 billion um, dollars, and Germany benefited most, receiving three billion. Uh, and in June 1955, the New York Times wrote, I quote from the New York Times, the booming state of the West, uh, Western European economies offers the best possible evidence that the massive American aid programs of the immediate post-war years accomplished what they were supposed to, end quote. And the German historian Hans-Ulrich Wehler even argued that if we had had a, a Marshall Plan instead of a Versailles Treaty in 1918, we would have had a boom in 42 and no Nazis. And this is obviously very problematic. Top, um, a very problematic argument um, because historians have long overestimated the impact of the Marshall Plan on the German economy. In fact, early commentators and indeed historians have praised Marshall as a kind of a heroic enterprise. Um, but in the late 1960s, revisionists in a way more and more questioned this narrative and pointed out that the Marshall Plan was not offered by Washington for moral reasons, uh, but more importantly for geopolitical um, purposes um, to, to basically build a strong 
anti-Soviet Western bloc, right? And moreover, historians more recently in the 80s and 90s um, have pointed out that the Marshall Plan's economic impact uh, was also much smaller than we usually think. Um, of course, the Marshall Plan helped. Um, it had a symbolic, psychological function, right, showing especially Germans that they were not alone, very different to Versailles. Um, but um, we should not overestimate its economic um, significance. Um, it came far too late, right? By the 1948, the German economy had already recovered and was already recovering. Um, it was far too small in relative terms um, to have had a major impact. And third, um, there were other more important factors that contributed to post-war reconstruction. Um, there, was of course, there were, of course, other aid programs, but far more important were um, that was that Germany still had significant infrastructure um, and know-how. So it had skilled workers, um, for example, many well-trained engineers. Um, it had factories. In fact, far less, uh, far fewer factories were significantly damaged during the war than initially appeared, um, or they could be easily rebuilt. So instead of, of tanks and cannons, um, they would now just produce Volkswagen Beetles, and instead of machine guns, uh, kitchen appliances. Um, and finally, of course, there was a reconstruction effect, right, which was probably the most important element uh, for post-war reconstruction, the so-called catch-up effect. Um, because of wartime destruction, um, there was a potential for independent investment and growth to pre-war levels. Um, so for those of you who studied um, macroeconomics, as undergrads or, or, or graduates, it's basically what, what in the solo model we'd call the steady state, right? Um, which we reach through investment and savings. And then if we want to go beyond the steady state, we need to have um, technological innovation and so on. Um, okay, so uh, let me end. Um, so while we had, um, in 1945, the German economy obviously looked pretty bad, right? <laughs> you can see here. Um, collapsed monetary system, destroyed industry, a major refugee crisis, 10 million refugees in Germany. Um, but by the 1950s, um, it had recovered and, it be and began, um, Germany again became kind of a like major industrial power. Um, and we should not forget that it was also the welfare state and the social peace um, that contributed um, to, to, to the stability of German society, contributed to, to the post-war reconstruction and to social stability in Germany um, up to today. Thank you very much. I'm going to show a short video first, if I can find it, which I'll not do this way. Um, I need to go to the Internet Explorer. That one.
talk amongst yourselves while we get into this. This is is the uh, regulation break. Supervisor Michael Howard. So he's, he's, he said uh, somebody asked him an interview. What would be your what would be your advice for a young lecturer giving a lecture? He said he, he said was be audible. <laughs> so speak up. Speak up. Yeah. I'm surprised that he, sometimes it's very difficult. I mean the website looks kind of fine, but actually navigating around it. Constant battle with the library. So don't like the the. the, the pictures are so small, right? In this little. Oh, my daughter um, was looking at the LAC website, and she said, "Your your website is so sick." Very good. Oh, good. Which means yeah, it looks very good. It looks a bit corporate. So she she liked she liked it. I said you shouldn't. Try. Well, if you try and look, you actually use it. Or maybe it's a generational. Hey, that sounds like progress. Just the advert As the result of much intensive study into questions of social security. Sir William Beveridge is the recognised authority on present-day and post-war problems. Following upon the publication of his report, Sir William summarises the points of his plan. The security plan in my report has three sides to it. The report proposes, first, an all-in scheme of social insurance, providing for all citizens and their families all the cash benefits needed for security in return for a single weekly contribution by one insurance stamp. The benefits are to be adequate in amount and to last as long as the need lasts. The report proposes, second, a scheme of children's allowances to be paid both when the responsible parent is earning and when he is not earning. The report proposes, third, an all-in scheme of medical treatment of all kinds for all citizens. The national minimum is a peculiarly British idea. It means that no one is to fall below a certain standard. It leaves everyone free to spend his income above that standard as he will. It preserves the maximum of individual freedom and responsibility that is consistent with the abolition of want. 
that is the aim of my report as shortly as I can put it. I hope that when you've been able to study the report in detail, you'll like it, that it'll get adopted, and that so we shall take the first step to security with freedom and responsibility. That is what we all desire. Thank you, Sir William. He's a natural. Yes, he's Craven Gammon. Hello, and welcome to another revision guide here on History Help. <laughs> <laughs> you can watch this video on History. Okay, some, some, some light relief there. Uh, I could spend the entire 20 minutes, I think, dissecting that video. Um, you'll notice the patriotic music, which is important. You'll notice that he is talking to Pathé News. He's, in other words, he's trying to publicise what he's doing. It also gives you a little bit of a flavour of the personality, which is actually extremely important too, and I'll make some remarks about that as I go through. I want to centre this on the document that you can see in front of you, and we have a rather tattered copy in the LSE course collection, um, Social Insurance and Allied Services. This is, this is the Beveridge Report. This is the famous report uh, of December 1942. Um, I want to talk a bit about the thinking behind the report, and I want to talk a bit about the impact and consequences of the report. Um, but before I do those two things, I need to talk a bit about what's in the report itself, which I think is often misunderstood. And another feature of that video is that Beveridge actually gives you rather a misleading impression and does, in fact, an over-enthusiastic sales job on the nature of the report, which is a more cautious document and a more, less sweeping document than at first you might think. But anyway, here it is. Now, the essence of the report and the key principle that runs through it is the principle of abolition of want, capital A, capital W. That phrase does come, as Matthew pointed out, as the third of the four freedoms, the address that uh, the State of the Union message that Franklin Roosevelt had given to Congress in January of 1941. The objective, then, is the uh, abolition of want in the United Kingdom after the Second World War reaches its conclusion. The key method by which this is to be brought about, and Beveridge is right about this in the broadcast, is through a scheme of social insurance, National insurance, as it's come to be known since the National Insurance Act of 1946, is the guiding mechanism through which want poverty is going to be abolished. Now, there are a number of things that need to be said about that. The national insurance principle is not something that will be taxpayer-funded. Yeah? It will not primarily, at any rate, be taxpayer-funded, and there are quite careful costings in the report, though they turned out to be over-optimistic. Essentially... The idea behind social insurance is that it should be self-financing as a contributory system. And there's a good deal in the report about the moral advantages that Beveridge saw in the contribution system. In other words, the underlying principle is that the people who are fortunate enough to be in work, to avoid disability, to avoid sickness, should pay enough into the scheme to enable it to meet the needs of those who are not, of those who are, if you like, at the receiving end. Now, underlying this is a further principle, which is a key thing. In other words, is universality. Everybody, or almost everybody, should be affiliated with the insurance scheme 
either as beneficiaries or as contributors. This means the wealthy pay their share as well as the poor. Yeah? Um, and they pay at a flat rate. This is another key point. Yeah? This is where, Bismarck, where a beverage consciously, I think, distanced himself from the Bismarck principle in Germany. Yeah? That, in other words, everybody pays the same amount in and everybody potentially gets the same level of benefit as a consequence. Whereas in Germany, though David may want to comment further on this, as I understand it, there was a graduated system from early on, and I think you mentioned the four tax rates in Germany going back to the Nazi period. So, so Beveridge's approach is different. Flat rate, both for what comes out, in fact what comes out, he set as a key, he suggested in the report, the key principle here is it should be 40 shillings a week for a married couple in the event of unemployment. 40 shillings a week, uh, two pounds if you're Pre post-1971 and post-decimalization, generalization, generation, that was to be the key output. Yeah? 40 shillings a week, two pounds a week was the basic level of benefit. So a universal system, a contributory system, a self-financing system, yeah? these are all important features of it, and a system that's to be adequate to meet need. Remember he mentioned that also in the, in the clip. Now, what does adequacy mean? There's a good deal in the report about subsistence, and uh, the subcommittee, in fact, of the Beveridge Committee looked at what was meant by subsistence. They went back to the standards of living in 1938. They made an adjustment for wartime inflation, which had uh, reached about 25% by the mid-1940s. Um, but it's from that. They derived from what, what was looking at adequate to support a working-class family in the late 1930s. Enough to give it the basics. The most difficult thing to assess was rent, because that varied so much from different parts of the country. But enough to provide them with housing, put some food on the table. And that was about it, actually. It was a fairly austere definition of subsistence. But the, wage, but the insurance scheme should be enough to guarantee everyone's subsistence through the various things that happened in the life cycle. Might include unemployment, might include industrial injury, might include sickness and would certainly be very likely to include old age. So, universality then, contribution, flat rate benefit, flat rate contribution, adequate for subsistence. And the whole thing to be unified, this is another key point and very characteristic of the 1940s, this was to be a national system, an amalgamating a patchwork of previous systems and to become under the administration of a single ministry of social security. Now, almost as important, and this is rather mischievous, I think, um, but Beveridge said the system would not work unless it ran in conjunction with certain other assumptions. Three assumptions. Number one, family allowances. At least for the second child onwards. Number two, national health service. Number three, full employment. So these things are also in the report, but the report only goes in detail into the social insurance scheme. It also acknowledges that social insurance will not be enough, and it needs, you need to have something else, some kind of national assistance, which would be taxpayer-funded, come from the exchequer, and would be means-tested. Remember, half of the <coughs> whole point of the social insurance scheme is it's not means-tested. You get your benefits as of right because of the contributions you've made over the life cycle. 
So it's something which Beveridge was very concerned as thought about the, the needs of the dignity, protect the dignity of the recipient. Uh, so the social insurance scheme is not means-tested, it's universal, but it is sup to be supplemented by a national assistance scheme, which is means-tested and does come from the Exchequer. But Beveridge stresses that will be a secondary thing. That's not got the primary responsibility for alleviating poverty. Yeah. That's national assistance then. That will paper over the cracks, so if you like. It will catch up with the people who are not, for one reason or another, catered for by the social insurance scheme. So what I want to stress then, in the end, of course, it is a pretty comprehensive program. But the social insurance scheme is the thing where the, where the weight is placed and where the emphasis comes. National assistance is a supplementary procedure, um, but accompanying it, and in, fact, in practice equally important, of course, and equally appealing, were the three underlying assumptions that there would be a national health service, that there would be full employment, and there would be family allowances. Now, what's underlying all of this? This is what's underlying all of this. Um, but this is Beveridge, a lot of pictures of Beveridge I could show you, but anyway, here he is in 1943. Beveridge is the chair of the Beveridge Committee. The report that I've shown you on social insurance and allied services is the product of the Beveridge Committee, which Beveridge chaired, and it had been set up in 1941 as a fairly low-key exercise. The person who was responsible for it was Arthur Greenwood, <coughs> Labour Minister, Minister without portfolio, who was in fact in charge of Reconstruction. Greenwood was a second-rate politician. He's mainly known for being called on to speak for England, I think, in a famous debate in 1940 in the House of Commons. A uh, second-tier second Labour politician, and reconstruction planning in 1941-42 was a second-tier job. The, prim the primary responsibility of the government, as most people saw it, was to win the war, which, of course, was proving very difficult for much of 1941-42. So anyway, in 1941, Beveridge is set up as chair to chair a committee which is given a fairly low-key responsibility of tidying up, reviewing the system of social welfare. The political purpose is to um, conciliate the trade unions, whose importance for the war effort, of course, everybody acknowledges. The idea that it should be Beveridge, who runs the committee, comes from, Ernest, comes from a combination of Greenwood with Ernest Bevin, who was the Minister for Labour, Bevin wanted to move Beveridge out of the Department of Labour, which is where Beveridge was working. Like many people, Bevin couldn't stand Beveridge and wanted to move him somewhere else. So Beveridge's function was put in charge of this, what he originally thought of was going to be a low-key, low-profile committee. Now, it doesn't, of course, end up like that. What Beveridge is given is a committee of civil servants. So I think there are seven of them representing the different departments who were responsible for the patchwork quilt of British social administration before 1942. Um, at the end of it, the report that you've seen is signed off just by Beveridge himself. <clears throat> it's produced just by the chair and the civil servants of the different departments, which include the Treasury and the Home Office, um, are not personally responsible for its contents. That's just as well, because Beveridge had actually decided what the contents would be back in December 41, um, so before the a year before the report appears, and before the report hears most of the expert testimony. Beveridge all, had already pretty much decided what he wanted to put into it. He wanted to put into it the three assumptions. This alarmed the Treasury, who were tipped off by the Treasury spokesperson on the committee. Um, the compromise that was reached was that Beveridge would not drop the three assumptions, but he would sign the report off as the work of the chairman. 
There's a bit about this at the beginning of the report. So it's Beveridge's personal report. Of course, he did consult other people. He notably consulted J.M. Keynes, who had been um, seconded to the Treasury, fellow, fellow liberal, of course, and he produced a kind of deal with Keynes about how the report would be paid for. The essence of this, and I will, I think, mention this is the appropriate point, I've said that the child allowances, the family allowances, would come from the second child onwards. That's one concession. The other concession is that old age pensions would be phased in over 20 years. It would be a 20-year transition period to the um, full introduction of the relatively generous old age pensions that Beveridge envisaged. Given these concessions, <coughs> Keynes was willing to say that the report was affordable, though Keynes does not, of course, speak for the Treasury, even though he's been seconded to it and temporarily working for it. So Beveridge did take advice from Keynes, and he also took advice, something else that influenced him was a representative who came across from the International Labour Office, the ILO, who briefed the committee on what was being done in social security systems in other countries. And they have an appendix, it's an appendix F if you want to look at the report, where they list the social security provision in 30 other countries. Now, Beveridge's starting point is that Britain has actually got a pretty generous system already, but it's a piecemeal system and it needs to be unified and standardised because it's full of anomalies. That's his starting point. You get this right at the beginning of the report. Now, what's driving Beveridge? Um, there are a couple of things, I think, that need to be said. Um, one is that it's not religion. He, was, he became a religious, interested in religion towards the end of his life. At this stage, he wasn't really. Um, politically, his sympathies are with the liberals, and he later on became a liberal MP for a brief period of time. That turns out to be politically quite important. He wasn't a socialist, although he worked, of course, closely with the Web, Beatrice and Sidney Webb, particularly in the period when he was director of the LSE. He has a very eclectic philosophical background. Um, it's difficult to mention any one particular figure who dominates his thought, the one who Josie Harris, his biographer, stresses is T.H. Huxley, a late Victorian biologist and thinker. Um, but that's only one of many. I stress the late Victorian. Beveridge was born in 1879. By the time of the report, he's 62. So he is a late Victorian, yeah? and he's a person who'd been born in the Raj. His father was an Indian civil servant. He has many of the characteristic attitudes of late 19th century and early 20th century British people, one of whom is, is an interest in and belief in eugenics. While he was director of the LSE, he'd actually, um, much against the opposition of much of the academic staff, had set up a department of social biology. Uh, in the end, the Hogburn, who was the professor responsible, moved off to Scotland, and the department was closed down towards the end of Beveridge's tenure. But he had a lifelong interest in eugenics and in genetics. Now, does this have an influence on the Beveridge report? This is a controversial issue. I think there is a bit in the report, but not very much. What you will find in the report that may reflect this interest is a section towards the beginning where Beveridge tries to gaze towards the future and he sees two problems. Number one, huge numbers of people becoming elderly. He predicts that there will be a, a massive expansion in the population over retirement age in the 20 years after 1945. That's partly why you have to phase in the old age pension over two decades. The second thing, which is the, in some ways the corollary of that, is that he's looking at the falling birth rate. Remember the UK birth rate in the 1930s had been extremely low. It had actually fallen below replacement rate. Beveridge says that cannot continue. That is not viable, that combination of a massive increase in the elderly population 
with a decline in the birth rate, which, unless something is done about it, means the UK population will shrink and shrink fast. Now, one of the consequences of that is that you can see in the beverage report um, a stress on the importance of maternity and of child-rearing and of encouraging those. Um, the report, he thought, was quite generous towards married women. Um, we may not think so now. One of the things you may have noticed in the clip is how he uses the word he when he talks about the parent, yeah? Now, there's a, uh, okay. This is not someone, if you like, of a post 1970s generation and his outlook out out and upbringing. Um, he, but he started from the assumption that the wartime labour market, where married women have gone into the labour market on a large scale, this is not going to persist into peace. Britain will go back to where it had been in the 1920s and 1930s. Married women, the, the proportion of married women who work may be about a seventh or eighth. Married women will be able to work and will be able to get benefits, but through their husband. It's assumed that their husband will be the primary breadwinner and the person who is the lead figure, if you like, in the national insurance scheme. If married women do go out to work, they will have the voluntary option of becoming contributors and therefore potentially beneficiaries, but they contribute and benefit at a lower rate. So Beveridge regarded child-rearing and raising the next generation and repopulating the country is extremely important, and he hoped that his social insurance scheme would create conditions in which that would be encouraged. Now, but it is not, if you like, the eugenics aspect, I think, is one of the things that needs to be looked at in the background of the report. Um, but the primary driver behind the report is, I think you have to take it at its face value, the primary thing is the abolition of want and the, ref and the reformation of the social security system, which Beveridge describes as a British revolution, yeah? A B, capital B, and a capital R. He says this is a revolutionary report, though it is British in the sense that it's built on past foundations, on built on the existing structures but radically reforming them to meet the new wartime and post-war circumstances. Now, let me hark a little bit further on that. Beveridge, of course, by 1942, has spent a lifetime as a civil servant and as an academic dealing with social security and social insurance questions, go back to the acts of 1911 and 1920, and has a lifetime concern with poverty. As a young man, he'd worked at Toynbee Hall in East London, as had many, of course, of Attlee and others of this who are going to dominate the post-1945 Labour government. Um, his analysis of the situation, as I explained a moment ago, is that Britain has a generous system, but it's a piecemeal system that needs to be standardised and harmonised. He also argues the country can afford to abolish want. There are some extremely interesting passages towards the end of the report where he talks about how the country's got richer and richer since 1900. The living standards have actually risen and there is enough money, he argues, even within the working class to abolish poverty. But if the wealthier elements, more affluent elements of the working class contribute to this redistributive scheme, there will be enough money there, even if you don't bring in the middle and upper classes, though, of course, he believed they should be brought in as well. Yeah? So, but his argument is that economic growth without state intervention and redistribution is not enough to solve the poverty problem. In other words, in light, as we would put it these way, today, trickle-down is not enough. Economic growth does not mean that all the boats will be lifted with the rising tide. You need state action too, as well as the rise in gross national product, as we will now call it. Yeah, so this is the thinking. Um, then, and he, he'd also is very much influenced by the work of Seaborn Roundtree and the poverty investigators, particularly in York in the 1930s, 
his analysis is that the key problem is employment. If people are in work, they can produce enough to feed their families. Poverty arises most commonly, three-quarters of the incidents, as he suggests, when people are out of work because of industrial accident or because of unemployment or for other reasons. The rest of it, the other quarter, is caused by large families. But he wants to encourage the large families and he wants to build a safety net within which people can be protected against uh, being isolated for one reason or another from the, from the labour market. Yeah, so that's the thing. He's constructing a minimum safety net. He's not starting from the assumption of poverty of people within work, which we know is one of the great preoccupations of the contemporary debate we have now about what are the causes of poverty in the UK. He argues the key thing is work, of course, he thinks is right for moral reasons. Yeah, it's, it's, it's ennobling for the individuals who are concerned. But also, if you can get everybody in the labour market as much as possible, then this will be the key means of instrument by which you eliminate poverty if you back up participation in the labour market by the social insurance plan. The other thing I should have mentioned this earlier, of course, the minimum is a minimum. Beyond that, it's also open to people to provide further insurance to protect themselves and raise their living standards above the safety net that's provided. So I've given you a little bit about the thinking, I hope, behind the plan. I want to talk finally and more briefly about the impact. That's important, of course, when it happens. Here's one of the famous pictures of the Blitz with the man delivering milk in London. Now, before the first, Second World War, Beveridge in the 1930s had accepted a lot of what we would now recognise as the characteristic Hayek view. In other words, that a state-controlled economy is one that cannot sustain the democratic, free political system. His experience um, during the Second World War in the UK convinced him that actually you could have a very highly state-regulated economy without destroying political freedom and political liberty. And this revolutionises his own thinking, um, acts as a kind of liberation, according <coughs> again to his, his biographer, Jose Harris, because I think much of the underlying assumption behind the Beveridge Report is that the economy will remain highly state-controlled it's the government's responsibility to ensure full employment, um, and there will be high levels of taxation which will support the National Health Service, for example. Um, but having said all of that, he still wants to keep the social insurance within manageable costs. That's why I mentioned earlier on that there's a lot of <coughs> emphasis given, a lot of attention given in the Beverage Committee to how much this will cost. Is it affordable? He argues that it definitely is. And he argues that, really, the government should commit itself to the social insurance scheme now, during the war. And that will be not, not just as part of the uh, broader program of Allied propaganda that's been mentioned in connection with Franklin Roosevelt, also as a good means of dealing with the Germans, and I should have mentioned this, actually, the German commentary on the beverage plan is extremely dangerous. <laughs> um, they see it as something that um, will, will, will buttress morale in the Allied countries. Um, the German press were not allowed to comment on it for that reason. Yeah. Um, but sorry what I was going to say losing my track of thought here um, it's important for him he argues that the plan should be implemented now while the war is going on and that becomes a key issue in the political debate now if we look at the political debate the first, first thing to say of course is the public reception to the plan um, overwhelmingly favourable famously a bestseller um, it's over 300 pages. It's pretty dense. It's well written, but it's very thought out, but it's dense. 635,000 copies sold in the first few months. Another 50,000 copies sold in America. So this is a bestseller. 
overwhelmingly welcomed in the press. Beveridge himself becomes a celebrity, tours around the UK, tours in the United States. Um, and public opinion polls, the Gallup polls that were introduced in 1942, suggest 86% in favour of its immediate introduction, though high degree of scepticism about whether it would actually be introduced, interestingly, because people remembered, I think, what had happened after the First World War, um, the promises that had not been fulfilled then, as Beveridge himself remembered that. Um, so the party political terms, the cabinet, of course, is a conservative-dominated cabinet, but with Labour holding key positions within it. Remember, it's important to remember that parameters have been set by the 1935 general election, so the Conservatives still are overwhelmingly outnumbering Labour in the House of Commons. Labour Party accepted, particularly Herbert Morrison, the Home Secretary is important here, accepted in principle the report very quickly. The Conservative Party, an element did, R.A. Butler, there's probably about 35, 40 MPs who were in favour of accepting the report at once. But the majority of the Conservative Party is much more sceptical. And within the Cabinet there is a fierce debate. The opposition to the Beveridge Report comes from Kingsley Wood, who is the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who was a Chamberlainite in background, argued it was unaffordable. Britain could not commit it itself to this when it doesn't know what its post-war economic circumstances are going to be like. It will need money for housing, it will need money for rebuilding its export industries and so on. And that broadly reflects Churchill's view. Churchill was cautious in the debate. He was worried about the impact of accepting the report on Britain's overseas position, international position after the war, and Churchill didn't want, if you like, to raise expectations, as we would now say. He didn't want to be promising something that couldn't be delivered on. So what this means, really, is the Labour Party gain a tremendous political advantage because when it goes to a House of Commons vote, which it does in um, spring of 1943, I think it's February, um, the Labour ministers, of course, have to go with the government line, and the government line is sympathetic in principle but not commitment now. All of the Labour opposition, all of the Labour MPs who are not in the government um, vote against the government in the, in the division that takes place in the House of Commons. So the Labour Party from here on, if you like, is able to have its cake and eat it, seem the responsible party that's in the cabinet and helping win the war, but is also the party that is committed to supporting the Beveridge Report. And as you move on through the 1944-1945, that remains the position, really, the official government position, which is put in a white paper in 1944, sympathetic, but not committing to themselves now. And that leaves, okay, the, the final point I will make, yeah, there is a political, historic, historical debate about consensus. Paul Addison, on the one hand, in his book called The Road to 1945, argued that the Beveridge Report became the basis of a, of a, of a cross-party consensus that lasted into the, 1945, into the 40s and 50s, even to the 70s. Other historians, such as Kevin Jeffries, have questioned this, and I think Kevin Jeffries is persuasive, in saying that the Labour Party was committed to the Beveridge programme or something like it, the Conservative Party wasn't, and this is a major reason why the Labour Party win, of course, in the election of 1945. The Beveridge report and the Labour reaction to it is a major reason, not the only reason, but a major reason why the Labour Party has a 10% poll lead right through from 43 to 45 and translates that into electoral success in July 45. And subsequently, the Labour government of 1945 to 51 puts most of the Beveridge programme into effect. National Insurance Act 46, National Assistance Act 48, National Health Service. Most of it, they're not quite in the way Beveridge envisaged. And in particular, the levels of benefit were lower than Beveridge had expected. 
But that's the situation then, down to the late 40s, and um, I'm not sure, I think I should probably leave it there, except to say that after the Conservatives were defeated, then the Conservative Party did, if you like, for pragmatic reasons, come to accept most of the social insurance legislation the Labour Party had put into place, and they keep it in being in the 50s, but once the British economy runs into trouble again in the late 50s, early 60s, then fairly quickly the consensus over social welfare breaks down. And that, of course, leads us to the, gets us eventually to, to where we are today. But there's a lot else happens in between, which I don't think I can talk about now. So I'll stop. Thank you. We will now open the floor to questions briefly. Um, so if you can give us your name and affiliation, uh, we'll have a steward running around with the microphone. And it looks like we have a question perhaps over on the other side of the room. And then back. Thank you. Hi, my name is Chi Xiang. I'm a study abroad student at King's and uh, I'm from Singapore. So I've got two questions and generally it's about the welfare state and the empire. So firstly, this beverage report was written while the British Empire was still... In, in place. There was no decolonization yet. So I was wondering how the influence of the fact that Britain could still rely on the empire for finance for this uh, system was actually influencing the writing of the beverage report. And secondly, also, what was the influence of the beverage report on uh, social systems that actually occurred within the empire itself? Thank you. I, I mean, only in the sense that I think by... I mean, my sense of the development of British colonial policy in the Second World War is obviously that the British government is now um, thinking about how it justifies its continued um, presence in these overseas territories. And one of the things British governments have to try to adapt themselves to doing is talking about the language of development. So you see two colonial development acts passed during the war years, one in 1942 and one in 1945, so I think what British, the, what the coalition government at least is thinking about is actually the empire is... I, I know Labour go, the Labour government after 1945 has the groundnut scheme and there are, you know, Bevan has the idea of developing Africa, the African colonies. But I think, in, in, you know, in, in the longer term, there is a feeling that actually that Britain is actually going to have to invest in its colonies to actually almost kind of... Ju to actually invest in development of those economies to actually provide some kind of legitimacy for why they're still there because there is such a kind of anti-colonial groundswell which is built up by, you know, dur during the war years, particularly of course because of what's happening in Asia um, and with the, the loss of Britain's colonies in Asia and the rise of um, anti-colonial nationalism there. But I think in a way that, 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 that sense of colonial development is actually going to require um, in the investment of money rather than actually in a sense kind of exploiting colonies for the benefit of the welfare state at home. I guess that's why I see that debate um, moving. But there's no doubt, I mean, there are you know, there were divided opinions actually about whether, you know, the empire would be a, you know, a, a post-war drag on the economy or not. I mean, of course, that's a big debate that develops in the post-war years. Yeah, could, I think the, um, the empire's not mentioned much in the beverage report itself, though they did look at the dominions for examples, and actually New Zealand is cited quite a lot by beverage as an example of, of the way to go, for example, with old-age pensions. Um, they don't argue in the report, of course, that we, we can afford this because we've got the empire. You know, what the report argues is that essentially it can be afforded from the resources of the UK home islands. Um, it may have had an influence on the attitude of the Labour Party. I mean, one, one of the reasons why India 
I think anyway, one of the reasons why the, the two parties move towards accepting that it's necessary to get rid of India is that it's becoming actually an economic liability rather than an asset by the late 1940s. It's not the only reason, but it's one. Whereas other parts of the empire, particularly Africa, continue to be potentially economic important, so does Malaya. Now, this is one reason, if you go into the late period after 1945, why you can <coughs> a post-45 Labour government, which is committed to decolonization in India, is by no means committed to colonization in the rest of the British Empire. And this is partly because I think Bevan himself, for example, argues that um, British working-class living standards, maintaining them at home, depends on maintaining the empire and developing it abroad. I mean, and increasingly, I mean, just to build on what David said, I mean, the, 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 the calculation that British governments actually have to make, make after 1945 is actually the, whether, whether the defence of the empire, the worldwide defence of the empire, against both what becomes you know, this perceived communist threat both internal subversion and external communist threat um, adds up, you know, in terms of the, the, the economic benefits that, that what Britain's worldwide reach um, confers in the 1950s and into the early 1960s. And eventually it's going to, of course, be another Labour government, the Wilson government from 1964 onwards, that comes to the conclusion in the face of extreme economic pressures that maintaining Britain's world role is not worth it, actually. That the economic advantages brought by that world role um, are not sustainable and you see decisions made to withdraw from east of Suez essentially for you know financial reasons because the the cost of defending the um, the cost of defending Britain's worldwide position so overseas military bases and so on and so forth are becoming unsustainable by then and in fact Britain's future lies much more towards um, you know trading patterns and relationships with um, our European partners <laughs> <laughs> How, how times have changed. <laughs> uh, thanks. Um, Alan Brenner from University College London. Very, very quick question for Matthew. Um, how does the, uh, the GI Bill of Rights, with its emphasis on education and housing, fit into the narrative? Um, not, not, I mean, it's not an even, you know, narrative at all. I mean, what I'm talking about more is the politics, I guess, of the New Deal rather than the actual... I mean, you know, there's no... There's, there's no doubt that you know, the moderate Republicans, at least, accept the legacy of the New Deal into the post-war years. I mean, they accept, they accept um, you know, the Social Security Act of 1935, for example, which is a very, very important piece of New Deal legislation, of course, and it still operates today, is, is um, you know, accepted by, by moderate Republicans and carried on. No, kind of with some degree of reluctance, but, it, but it's not completely dismantled in the 1950s. What, what you see a real reaction against is the notion really of... of, of it's really about... It's an argument about economic planning. It's an argument about whether the federal government has a role intervening in the economy to maintain what is, what is an essential um, condition of full employment, I think that David talked about as well, what become, you know, what's a background condition to actually make the beverage plan in Britain sustainable in the long term is actually the commitment by governments to maintain full, full levels, high levels of employment and to intervene in the economy when those high levels of employment are not, are not there, you know, to actually make some um, redress to that. So... I mean, what, what I was trying to argue is that, you know, the vision of, of New Deal liberals to actually extend the New Deal into, a, into new areas, substantially new areas, this, this just doesn't have any purchase, really, in American politics after 1945 and can't have purchase. But the GI, I think the GI Bill is, is, is becomes an exception because, you know, there is, there is an overwhelming thing to need to reward these guys, you know, guys, our, our men and some women, of course, many men, men serving overseas as well. But 
there's a, there's a there's a there's a there's a desire to reward them for their for their for their, for their efforts you know, during the war years, and it's very difficult to sort of argue just as just as the way veterans benefits you know is something which is sacrosanct in the United States, um, still virtually I should say virtually sacrosanct. That's a very controversy as well. But a lot of the you know, there's, a, there's a lot of um, um, you know, the, 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 federal, the federal budget goes towards veteran, veterans' benefits, and there's a veterans' benefits administration. Um, there's a powerful constituency and political lobby for those veterans' benefits. Can I add to that, based on our conversation earlier about the, the book by Ira Katznelson, When Affirmative Action Was White, that one of the things I found interesting about your talk is to say that the kinds of political negotiations to get Southern legislators to sign on to New Deal legislation was a compromise that GI benefits would not be evenly distributed among people, especially American minorities, to the extent that 100 out of 67,000 applications for mortgages or assistance with mortgages in the post-war economy went to minorities. The rest were white GIs, and that's something that I think is um, ties into a broader story I saw that David's comments, both of the David's comments, <laughs> tied into, which is that welfare state um, activities across borders shared in certain exclusions, and along with the extractions of empire that helped to shore up those kinds of economies. Um, and one thing that I think was also implicit in David's comments is that one of the, the things that seems to be happening is that poverty itself is identified as a problem that stems from overpopulation of certain populations. And so race and empire seem to be at the heart of what was being discussed here. And I think that that's a little harder to see when we first talk about the welfare state and accept its maxims of universalizing um, care. I think there was a question. Yeah, a very full and complete in it. Oh, sorry, Philip Harris. Um, I was an undergraduate here a couple of years ago. Um, but um, the interesting and full statements. Did, do you think that uh, Horbalicia, as a, an, a national liberal and Secretary of State for War from 1938 onwards, and who made social reforms in the armed forces, had any bearing on the matter? Is that a question for me? Well, it is, really. Mm. <laughs> um. Well, my, my sense is, is not, actually, that I think the, the key... Div if you're looking at the politics of this, the dividing line is 1940. Uh, I mean, I don't want to suggest that there's no nothing being done in the 1930s yet, that there are important installments of social reform in the 1920s and 1930s. And it's misleading, of course, when we look at Neville Chamberlain. He's, he's in many ways, he's owed his reputation to his background as a social reformer, his work in the 1920s. Um, what I think... I could have said more about this, but what I, what I was saying about 1940s, uh, how Be Beveridge changes his own mind in 1940-41, I think, about the political possibilities that have been opened up by a kind of revolution of the small r that happens in British politics in 1940 when the, uh, uh, there's no general election, the Conservative Party remains the largest party in the House of Commons, but the people who have led the Conservative Party in the 30s, particularly um, Chamberlain and Halifax, if you like, are demoted from political power, and Chamberlain, of course, dies. People take over, Churchill and Eden, who are primarily interested in foreign policy rather than in reconstruction. And this creates a field of opportunity, partly for the Labour Party, but also for what Arthur Marwick, long ago, an influential article called Middle Opinion, which he means people like, Mar like um, Beveridge, people like Keynes, it's quite important that people who are, if you like, non-party in a sense or liberal in affiliation are leading a lot of the initiatives. And the Labour Party is able to back initiatives that seem to come from a non-partisan centre. 
rather being authored by the Labour Party itself. Um, I think that that argument is quite persuasive for understanding the importance of this period. But also what, what's, what we see in 1940-41 is the lots of practical examples that the state can do things. They can set up an emergency health service, for example, which is a prototype in some ways for the emergency hospital service, which is a prototype for the National Health Service. Yeah? Um, in the end, it gets quite effective at running the war effort, though it, it goes through a difficult teething process in 40-41. I think that, that, that's important too. Sorry, that's not a direct answer to your question because I don't know directly about Horbelisha, but that, that's a kind of amplification of what I was, the argument I was trying to put across in the, in the presentation. Word about time. Yeah, we have reached time, so please, if you have questions, run up and barnstorm our panelists, and please join me in thanking them for their, their discussion.